0: Welcome to Total Convexity, a weekly financial podcast that caters to professional finance individuals, high net worth investors, family offices, and other sophisticated financial professionals. Join our hosts, hedge fund manager Jim Wang and Henrik Neohaus, as they explore the interconnected world of global macroeconomics, central banks, and capital markets. Comprehending the intricate web of global macroeconomics, central bank policies, and capital markets isn't just an option, it's a necessity. Whether you're a Chief Investment Officer, Financial Analyst, Entrepreneur, or simply someone curious about how the global economy and capital markets function, this podcast serves as your compass through the intricacies of the global financial landscape. In each episode, we will delve deep into the influential factors shaping our world, from global economic trends and central bank policies to capital markets and trading strategies. We will demystify financial jargon, clarify complex numerical data, and provide you with insights from experts in the field.
1: Total Convexity, episode nine is recorded on December the 15th, 2023. I'm your host, Jim Wang. Joining me is my co-host, Henrik Neuhaus. I'm glad to return with the ninth uh, episode of our podcast. In the first episode, we discuss our investment and analytical framework. We recommend new listeners to start out by reviewing our first episode as it ex- examined our framework and lays foundation for the subsequent episode. So just a brief recap, we examine the three-way reaction function of the capital between the capital market, fiscal monetary policy, economic growth and inflation through the lens of cycles. And in the context of liquidity, market structure, and we apply quantitative method whenever we can. You see, some of the other long-term factors were not part of our um, you know, investment you know, framework. However, we are very mindful of them. And these are science and technology development, climate change, and the geopolitics. And they are getting increasingly important. Now, this long-term thesis, science, technology, you know, the productivity growth has always been with us. However, we think the climate change and the geopolitics are the other two topics. That um that are becoming more dominant. And although our you know, investment free framework focus on the cyclical changes, uh, and but this long we are mindful of this long-term thesis. And this is a big topic. So we will talk about science and technology at uh, science and technology and climate change at the other time. And today we will talk about geopolitics. And normally, geopolitics do not play an important role in our investment framework. And it's very hard to to, uh, trade geopolitics and uh, it hardly make money uh, and probably provide some uh, short-term trading opportunities, uh, if any. Uh, However, we do think the world that we're going to get into in the future will be very different from the world that we have been in the past few decades. And the geopolitical uh, factor Will play increasingly important role uh, in the world and also in the investment, in the investment world. And therefore, we want to talk about the geopolitics today. And what, you know, we will have a brief discussion on them and what's the investment implication. Before we start, uh, Henrik, let me ask you a question about the music because you know, for a podcast. So when I first started a podcast, and I was thinking about the music, and you suggested. Um, I think it's beautiful, but uh, I want to know the background and why you pick it.
2: Yes, hi, Henrik here. Yes, we are back. We are happy to be back to this new episode of Total Convexity. Now, the our theme music is Dmitry Shostakovich's Waltz Number no. Two from 1956, and and technically this is film music, happy music. But the piece, for all intents and purposes, really is his waltz number two of his jazz suite from 1938. Now, it's a charming, melodic, elegant, and memorable piece, but it was written in Stalinist USSR at a time when the truth didn't matter, raw power was everything, the world was plainly accelerating toward the abyss, and alternative facts could end your life in the basement of the NKVD. Once you know something about the context of the creation of an abstract piece of art, this knowledge inevitably affects in you know, how you experience the art. So despite its great beauty, I can't, personally, I can't help finding the piece to also be neurotic and bordering on the unhinged for our time. Now, this was a dark beginning and I wish you hadn't asked, Jim.
1: Uh, yeah, well, thank you for your explanation. It's a, it's a beautiful music and I really uh, like it. But, um, but certainly it relates to the uh, geopolitics we're going to talk about today. Before we delve into the specifics of today's geopolitics, so, Henrik, maybe you, you, know as a, um, a US manager, risk manager, S allocator, quant, and you have been wearing all these hats in your past experience. Uh, explain to us how these geopolitics, how do you think about geopolitics? Um, as a um, as as a
2: investment professionals, yes, um, and and requires some um, one has to be careful, right? It, it, because as as a as a finance person, what we do tends to be well. We look at metrics, uh, we have our math, and we know what we're looking for. And and other than getting very excited about how the markets may move and getting carried away, it's it's not an emotional thing. And and there are relatively few biases. There are philosophies, but no biases really involved. Now, switching to geopolitics, you know, we're all human. And as such, we know that our thinking and analysis inevitably is influenced by biases, both the ones that we're aware of and the ones that are so ingrained in our identities and backgrounds that we're not aware of them. And Jim, you and I have similarities in how we think and analyze problems, or that's why we work together. Um, And this is good because this makes for effective communication. But we also benefit from the differences in our backgrounds, since every once in a while, we realize that when we look at certain situations, we approach this problem from different starting points. It's not about being right or wrong, but about trying to map out possible paths for the future. So more information is better than less. And part of this process is to make a conscientious effort to not be judgmental. Our job is only to navigate the future best we can, not to try and change the world. We, We have to know our limitations. We're very aware that, as the saying goes, a little knowledge may be a dangerous thing, But since we're not trying to predict where the world is going, we're actually not making forecasts, but just trying to discover possible developments that could influence the particulars of how your or our analytical framework plays out and how it then could affect the markets. We believe that any additional well-reasoned path scenario will add to our understanding of how the future could develop. And, And this is important, having these views of non-financial drivers would help with the timing of trades and also help keep us out of trouble if we fear that some exogenous geopolitical event may occur. Jim? Um,
1: yeah, Harry, I completely agree. Um, so basically, I think when we look at the, um, you know, when we discuss geopolitics, I want to emphasize to the view to the listeners, that they we, we do not have opinions, um, nor do we have a judgment on what is right what is wrong, okay? And that is subject to debate and different people have a different opinions. Um, nor do we trying to say what is, what should happen and what should have happened. Um, the most important as an investor is to evaluate the situation objectively and the uh, and forecast what's gonna happen and how to profit from it. And the way we look at it here is that we need to look at incentives for each player, what incentives, what incentivize them to do a certain things? And what's the risk calculation they have? And what's the benefit they're trying to get? By doing so, we can basically, you know, forecast what's the likelihood of some events to happen and how that will evolve. If we step back from, you know, from the, um, just look at the big picture of the world I would say we are experiencing one of the big changes in the last few decades. Um, I would say since the fall of the Berlin War, is that we are transitioning from a unipolar world into a multipolar world. And in the unipolar you know, polar world, dominated by the United States as a, he- in a hegemony, where you have you know reasonable uh, stability and a set of the rules that people can play. And uh, in the new world, um, I would say that it will involve probably a lot more conflicts uh, and uh, that, you know, there will be um, regional regionalization of supply chain and there will also be supply chain redundancy. Uh, there will be more defense spending. Uh, there will be more military and armed conflicts, you know, both Cold War and Hard War. And in addition to that, we um, we can, we are also going to discuss the uh, the climate change and, uh, and the long term impact. So if you add all these things together, um, you know the the obviously different you know regions and different thing, you know different part of the discussion have specific implications, but generally speaking, um, this is more inflationary uh, in the long run for the future, uh, and. Uh, Um, You know, we we were, you know, remember during our past episode, we have discussed our inflation framework and we have argued from a cyclical perspective, we expect inflation to come down. Uh, We have held that view for the past one year now. Uh, And, uh, you know, so far, you know, rightly so. Uh, However, we do think that uh, inflation probably will bottom out uh, sometime next year uh, and uh, and it will start, um, you know, probably because of recession. And then probably will start another inflationary cycle, and I think this secular force will only you know reinforce this. Uh, so maybe we will just move on and talk about different part of the world, and let's talk about you know geopolitics in Europe first. Uh, before I started, you know, Henrik, I I really do want to um, give you the credit uh, for your foresight on Ukraine war, um, and uh, you know both you and I. You know, have the views that uh, you know the probability is very high um, for the Russia to increase, you know, invade, you know, Ukraine, Uh, and we actually were able to pin, you know, you know, uh, pinpoint a specific time. Uh, I think was by you know, you know, almost exact day, right, Uh, for the uh, for the Russian to, you know, invade Ukraine, and your analysis, uh, and uh, you know, really uh, give me a lot of confidence. Uh, about that, uh, you know that uh, this is, uh, you know, reinforced my thinking and uh, give me confidence that this is gonna, this was going to happen. So, with all that credit, you know, given to you, now, Eric, maybe you can, you know, tell us, you know, kind of what is Russia's intention, what is the game plan, and what's the situation there, and how this will evolve. So, take it from there, and um and uh, you know, go from there.
2: Yeah. Thanks. Um Right. So, Jim, you, you mentioned that it's important to look at everyone's reaction functions another way of putting this is what are the underlying drivers for the different parties in, in, in a conflict? How will it pay out? Pay out? So my reasoning, reasoning and analysis when it comes to Russia really comes in two parts. The first part is to discuss some of the underlying driving force that has informed the U.S. and Western European, let's call it the collective West's worldview in the past say, 35 years. And the second part is really to talk about Russia as an example of what happens when you have different worldviews that collide. And and Russia is a a um, you know, how how Russia works and Russia's intentions and Russian culture is very well documented. There's nothing I'm not going to say anything which is surprising or or or, or anything. But I like to talk about this because where I come from, uh, Russia and the Soviet, before then the Soviet Union has been a reality that I've been exposed to and lived with all my life. So I, I know something about it. And the worldview that formed the Collective West's interactions with Russia can also be used to discuss how the Collective West has interacted with other parts of the world. But of course, it cannot explain what drives and motivates those other parts. That's another discussion. Okay, so now to the first part, which is about the force, why and how the Collective West has acted the way it has with respect to Russia. And it's, it's a philosophical discussion, really. So Western Judeo-Christian, or call it North Atlantic culture, whatever you want, is deeply rooted in the notion that humanity is on some path to some final destination. The path may be evolutionary, it's contorted, and the immediate direction may be difficult to sense. And there may be factors that cause intermediate deviations from the underlying path, but nevertheless, humanity is still moving towards some end point, whatever this is. Different people have different views on where we might be heading in the long run, but the underlying notion of a path and direction is there throughout Western culture, be it a fundamental part of a Christian or Marxist worldview or integral to large tracts of political and economic research in, in liberal democracies. In the US and Western Europe, there's also widespread intuitive Let's say post-colonial notion that just because all people Mm -hmm. fundamentally are the same, meaning we all care about and strive for security and safety for our families and children, we somehow deep down must all be partial to some version of liberal democracy, if not for themselves or ourselves, then at least for our children and for their children. To believe this is both, both naive and conceited, but unfortunately, this is a common assumption. Now, recent and very influential manifestation of the assumption of a more or less linear historical process was an essay, The End of History, published by the political scientist Francis Fukuyama in 1989, and subsequently a book on the same theme called The End of History and the Last Man, published in 1992. In the essay, in 1989, which was written and published before the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union at the end of 1991, on Christmas Day, at no less. Fukuyama theorized, or rather posited that, and I paraphrase, that Western liberal democracy is the final form of human government and the end point of mankind's ideological evolution. Prophetic words indeed, but as the Soviet Union collapsed, and the Eastern Bloc got out from Soviet-stroke Russian dominance, and the different republics of the Soviet Union declared independence, one might forgive Fukuyama if he thought that his vision for mankind was coming true. Add to this China's turn toward free enterprise in the 1990s, and the future must have seemed bright. The kind of political philosophy of which Fukuyama is a prominent exponent informed European-American policy and decision-making from the 1990s up to well beyond Russia's Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014, and how the relationship between the US and Western Europe on the one hand and Russia on the other hand has developed over the past 30 years is an illustrative case of of this. It's It's a good case study. Okay, so let's now turn to Russia. Now, as the new post-Soviet Russia went through its early chaotic years, the intelligentsia of Moscow and St. Petersburg held a lot of sway, and Russia experimented with moving toward a Western European-style state. This was a time when Western Europe and the US imagined the potential for business opportunities in and with Russia. Politicians liked to talk about the peace dividend that was going to come from decreased military spending. Some even talked about the eternal peace now being bestowed on us, and the majority of decision makers in government and industry completely forgot what they knew or should have known about Russian history. Westward looking the in Moscow and Leningrad or Saint Petersburg is only a thin sliver of Russian society, and this group never really had anything but just tenuous control of Russia. For example, already in the spring of 1992, the just 30-year-old Alexander Dugin, who now sometimes is referred to as Putin's philosopher, became adjunct faculty at the Academy of the General Staff of the Russian military and lectured on what is now called Eurasianist philosophy or ideology to guide and explain and rationalize, rationalize the development of the Russian state. Putin often talks about a multipolar world order, and this is an integral part of Russian Eurasianism. Early window, Russia might have had to reform itself and cement the beginnings of a democratic civil society. Definitely closed when Putin first became the first became prime minister of Russia in August nineteen ninety nine. The way Russia has developed and acted under Putin should not be a surprise to anyone. It obviously caught many policymakers in the West and, and corporations off guard. Authoritarian types like to publish their ambitions. Hitler wrote extensively about what he wanted to do. And this Eurasianist worldview has not only been published and talked about by Putin and his circle, but it's 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 a very well publicized approach to define Russia. And in the case of Russia, Eurasianism and the concept of Mir, that is the Russian world, loosely expressed, is the notion and integral to this is the notion that Russia is not a nation, but a civilization that has the obligation to protect and encompass anything vaguely Russian, wherever it exists. And this way of thinking this philosophy or ideology has strong traditions tying it back to the theoretical underpinnings of Tsarist Russia. So, there's very little new under the sun here. Russia is unashamedly expansionist imperialist, and its behavior is consistently aggressive. For example, Russia went to war with Georgia in 2008, occupied Crimea in February, March, 2014, then started the war to invade the eastern parts of Ukraine in April, 2014. It's the war during which it occupied uh, parts of the Donetsk and Luhansk districts. So parts of the Donbas, in other words. And then we have the all-star, then we have the all-out war starting in February, 2022. Essential central part of how the Soviet Union first, and now Russia seeks to promote its objectives, falls under the heading of hybrid warfare. And though the tools have changed, the aims are the same. We all know about Russian troll factories that help poison social media in the West. And fundamentally, what the troll factories are doing is essentially the same as what George Kennan of the, of state, of the state Department described in his famous long telegram in February 1946 already. And I quote from this telegram. So Soviet aims being to disrupt national self-confidence, to hamstring measures of national defense, to increase social and industrial unrest, to stimulate all forms of disunity. All persons with grievances, whether economic or racial, will be urged to spelt redress, not in mediation and compromise, but in defiance, violent struggle, for destruction of other elements of society. Here, poor will be set against rich, black against white, young against old, newcomers against established residents. Now, Back then, in 1946, it wasn't that easy. You had to work through people's fronts and, and different movements. But these days, the Russians have social media, where they essentially throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And then they help boost both sides to increase tensions as much as possible. Now, to stoke social conflict in the West, or anywhere else where people are free to follow whatever they want on the internet, is one of the reasons why the political landscape in the US and and also in Europe is so infected with extreme views and, and dysfunctional. This matters because the disunity that comes from this type of information warfare is very effective, and it supports Russian expansionists by creating distractions and conflicts that weaken the ability to, to take countermeasures. This, of course, does not mean that people don't have legitimate grievances and causes, and that there do not exist domestic actors who use similar techniques to further their own interests. But this is a significant tool that will support ongoing and future Russian actions. Uh, actions. So, because of US and European naivete with respect to Russia's ambitions and aims, the short sighted and, we would say, even I would say, willful blindness in regard to the risks of becoming dependent on Russian energy, the belief that war is no longer possible other than in strange and distant places that we don't know how to pronounce or, or even find on the map. The collective West was very weak in responding to Russia's war in Georgia in 2008 and to Russia following the occupation of Crimea and the occupations of the eastern parts in 2014. So the price that Russia had to pay for its actions was low and not really a deterrent for future moves. It was the general thought that war would be bad for business and no one wants bad business. Geopolitical conclusion with respect to Russia now is that we have reached a point where we, for the foreseeable future, can expect Russian aggression towards its neighbors, accompanied by a diversion stoked by by the Russians, combined with relentless information warfare. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is you can read about this. This is nothing new, right? And of course, this playbook is not unique to Russia. Uh, Everyone knows what it is, other can play the game as well. But the Russian case is probably the clearest and best documented example of, of this playbook. So all we can expect around, you know, and, and, and the expectation is that 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 there will be more political and countries around the world, and we have more crises of different kinds with refugees, migrants, more eternal, more, more internal disunity throughout. Anyway, so that's 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 my take on, on on Russia and where we're heading.
1: Right. Thank you for the um, the historical background and the philosophy and, and all these things, and I think it's very helpful. Um, but I think I'm interested in uh, in the war in Ukraine and uh, you know how 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 that is how that is going to evolve.
2: Yes. Well, the war in Ukraine. Has in fact been going on since 2014, right? When, 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 when Russia took Crimea and then and then and then the m- most of the Donbass. It's just more intense now, and Russia's maximalist objectives are out in the open. Putin talks about those things. It's not a secret. My personal best guess is that we will end up with a forever war, with varying intensity. Um, you know, Russia has violated every single agreement regarding Ukraine uh, over the past 30 years. There cannot exist a stable negotiated peace, whatever this peace would look like. Russia will continue its, its, its aggression towards Ukraine. It will continue to throw bodies of you know, humans to war. Russia is willing to accept and able to accept, uh, uh, to take enormous losses of, 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 of military personnel. And it will continue to undermine support for Ukraine and to distract other countries' attention from the war by creating and supporting conflicts in different places. And in short, many people who not even are directly involved in the conflict will be paying a high price for this conflict. Will Russia achieve a breakthrough or will Russia collapse? No, I don't think so. Probably not. So, in my mind, the shooting war may just peter out in, in a year or so and turn into a frozen conflict that will flare up every few years. But then, of course, Russia miscalculated the collective West's reaction to the war, and there's a real risk that Russia may do something that escalates the conflict. It's scary and sad, but I think we'll be, but in short, I think we'll be living with like this for, for, for a long time to come.
1: Um, right, Henrik, um, uh, that's okay. Um, so I think the, uh, I'm more interested in knowing the impact on European union, right? And, uh, you know, we know that, uh, you know, Germany, uh, as a core for the European union has benefited from the construct of European union. Uh, and the geopolitical situation, you know, in the past, and as a result, uh, Germany was the, um, you know, kind of an export engine of Europe and, uh, and 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 the world. Basically, Germany benefited from cheap energy from Russia, right? And because of the European Union, Germany also benefited from a cheap, you know, a cheap currency, right? And at the same time, they benefited from the cheap labor from China and also the vast, you know, the market. Uh, all over the world um and uh you know in our framework we talk about physical policy and the monetary policy and how they uh jointly uh impact the the market and also the economy and then uh, we uh in, in you know we I discuss about um you know the 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 post financial crisis impact of you know, QE in Europe with the lack of fiscal stimulus, like austerity. Uh, and the result here is basically anemic economic growth, you know, lack of inflation and uh, uh and is you know relatively higher financial, you know, price, you know, financial asset you know prices. Um and after the pandemic, a lot of things changes, right? So I my sense here is the European is heading towards more physical spending. As we know, Europe Europe has uh, you know monetary union, not a physical union. Uh, but I think a pandemic was basically a step for them to to start doing the physical stimulus and the physical spending. Uh, and obviously, they all eventually need to be monetized. Uh, and uh, um, and I would think that uh, you know with the climate change, you know which we're going to discuss in the future, and also in war in Russia i would think that it will head towards more than physical um you know more physical spending in the future and what are the other implications so i you know just love to hear your thoughts
2: yes well i i think the main implication is is as you say that 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 uh, we are going to see a, a period of a lot of you know government spending in in, in europe and and it's because and, and from Germany. Now Germany, is restrictive in many ways, and they try to impose fiscal discipline on 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 the on the on the eurozone. But quite frankly, I think that we're on the verge of that going out the window, and I will explain why. It's because the war in Ukraine has had a profound impact on European politics, in the sense that not only the most Europeans and politicians now have internalized the fact that Russia has to be dealt with differently than until recently. But there is also a genuine fear that Russia is a direct military threat to members of the EU. Granted, the EU is not homogenous, of course, but with Finland, the Baltics, and Poland being routinely threatened on Russian state TV and by members of the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the EU... and members are reacting. Defense spending is up. And there's an acute awareness across the EU that Europe needs to spend on infrastructure to secure reliable energy supplies. So when countries feel threatened, this comes, right? It, do- it doesn't matter what they what said previously about restraint. This is what matters. Now, and politically, And this is actually very important. It's not possible to understate the importance of the change that the German Social Democratic Party signaled as recently as last week, when it recognized that its previous cornerstone of foreign policy, to engage with Russia by strengthening business ties, was a mistake. This is a complete break from how Germany had approached Russia since the end of the Soviet Union. And with Germany being the dominant force in the EU, this will have repercussions throughout the union. So when a country feels threatened, or when a group of countries feel threatened, countries will spend what it takes. So we will see continued government spending and increased government spending in many EU countries on anything and everything that is related to national security. This will be a trend that will be with us for quite some time.
1: Right. I agree. That probably, um, you know, it's going to be in Europe and also in the United States and all of the world, as a matter of fact. Um, so let's talk about Middle East. I think you know at this particular point of time, you know what happened in Gaza. Uh, probably, it's not a coincidence, right? So maybe you can you know share with us what's going on there and uh, and what do you see how that's going to evolve?
2: Yeah, I, it's actually painful to think about. Um... So the Middle East is problematic and painful for two reasons, right? I mean, there are, there are many reasons, but I see it as, as two reasons. First, despite the many efforts and partial successes we've had also to create stability through mutual diplomatic recognition between Israel and, and, and different Arab states, this has been a process that's been going on for a long time. There is the unresolved issue of the Palestinians. Rightly or wrongly, there are millions of people who essentially are stuck between the state of Israel and its Arab neighbors who are not particularly key on the Palestinians. I mean, back in the 70s, there there, there was a war in Jordan when when the Jordanians threw out the Palestinians, for example. Talk about a two-state solution, but it's not necessarily a permanent solution or a workable solution if a future Palestinian state does not have internal stability. Effectively, we've had a bit of a two-stage solution already in place, but we've got Hamas ending running in Gaza and stability did not ensue. Because there are so many sources of ongoing conflict, ongoing and potential conflicts in the Middle East, the Middle East lends itself to be a place where countries further further their own aims by flaming conflict. And I believe this can explain a lot of what's going on in the Middle East. And you can look at who is benefiting from the various conflicts. For example, Iran has its own longstanding conflict with Saudi Arabia. So it is in the interest of Iran create situations where Israel and Saudi Arabia can't work out a close relationship. That would be detrimental to Iran. So Iran can use Hezbollah to infect the situation on the ground, hoping that this in some way will force Israel and Saudi Arabia to slow down or split up. The Russians surely were instrumental in pushing or persuading Hamas to be particularly vicious in their attack on Israel back in October, so that Israel cannot but, but react as it has in order to divert attention from the war in Ukraine. Sure, Hamas does what Hamas does, but how it does can be affected, can be influenced by our, our, our other powers. And um, things can get worse, right? I mean, we already see that the uh, we have rebels in 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 Yemen and around the Red Sea that that attack tankers and so on. Surely that is mm-hmm. encouraged by someone. Right? So it's Russians or Iranians, I don't know. And there are, there is a clear potential for 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 unpleasant surprises. I mean, we can have with shipping getting attacked, tankers taken over. We can have Western hostages, and all of a sudden we can have it can escalate to some kind of blockage or or or, or, or um, blockade of, of the Strait of Hormuz, for example. Not necessarily a blockade, but if, but if if some big tanker gets sunk or or, or, or so on, it, it affects the same thing. Um, so we we could get these very sudden shocks. I mean, people are waiting for have expected these things to happen for a long time. And sooner or later, something will happen. We we just don't know what right now. Um, As far as the future goes, well, look, the universe is a complex place and not all problems have obvious solutions. So despite all the efforts, diplomatic efforts, current and future, we may be stuck with this forever war in the Middle East for a long time, I'm afraid. And all kinds of things may happen during this time. Yeah, that, that's that's my two cents on 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 the Middle East. So, Jim, how about moving on to Asia? That that's more your backyard. So, can you share some thoughts? Uh,
1: yeah, uh, Henrik, I uh, will be happy to. Um, and uh, I think the uh, the conclusion from we are talking about the Middle East here is that, you know, we, we think that the uh, energy price and know, uh, rock commodity price probably can will continue to come down. Because of the of the demand recession, right? Uh, and I think it coincided with our long term inflationary thesis. And I think you know, once the commodity bottom out, probably you know, because of recession or not, um, there will be a that will be a buying opportunity. And uh, potentially, there will be a big shock, you know, of the uh, you know big shock. The probability of a big shock of the oil prices with dramatic increase, you know, that probably has increased significantly, right? So I think that's kind of a more practical uh, takeaway. Now, if we talk about Asia, um, I would say if we get the US and China relationship right, you know, we got the uh, basically the Asia right. Uh, And uh, probably for the ballpark of the world geopolitics as well. Uh, And I think the US and China relationship is the probably the most important relationship in the world, bilateral relationship in the world. and again, I think we, you know, we do not have a judgment what is right, what is wrong, but um, we try to analyze them from, you know, what's their incentive and what's likely to happen. Um, and from that perspective, maybe uh, it's helpful to give a, a brief history, right, uh, about a relationship between U.S. and China. Um, and we all know U.S. and China were allies uh, in World War II, so they were friends, and except at the time, you know, the government was the nationalist Kuomintang, right? uh and uh, after Chinese Civil War, you know, Kuomintang was defeated and uh, ran away uh, to uh, Taiwan, and uh, uh they still claim to be the legitimate government for the for China. So they are called the Republic of China, Uh and uh, and obviously, you know, in 1949, People's Republic of China was established, and. Uh, um, so, so the U.S., you know, continued to be friendly with, you know, the nationalist, but, uh, you know, because of the, uh, Cold War and, uh, U.S. and China were not, you know, with mainland, they were not friends. Um, but in the 1970s, right, and, uh, U.S. and China become friends again, um, you know, thanks to the mastermind of, uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, and, uh, basically they have a common, common enemy which is russia so the us and both us and china find the needs to uh to get close together uh and that's the political need right so so the us and china established a diplo- diplomatic relationship uh, and uh, us recognized the mainland the government as the legitimate government representation of china um and then later on i you know there will be more, integra- you know, economic integration, specifically after the, uh, you know, China joined the WTO. I think the American corporation suddenly find out that, uh, you know, there is a vast supply of cheap labor. And uh, and by the way, they are also very productive labor. So very cheap and productive labor. And that help, you know, shrink the corporate uh, profit margin dramatically. And that also help reinforce the disinflationary disinflationary trend uh, in the past few decades. Um, And um, at the same time, you know, they also discovered as China got wealthy and there is a bigger market, you know, consumer markets uh, for U.S. corporations. So, So U.S. was very willing to develop the economic ties with China. And from China's perspective, this is very welcoming because the, Um, they need to develop the economy and be integrated into the world, world, you know, uh, kind of economy Uh, and uh, so that the surplus labor from the rural area can be uh, more productively utilized and help their develop, you know, science and technology and uh, and all this. So both are happy, Uh, except I think, you know, more recently, you know, this trend was accelerating after, you know, the global financial crisis. Um, and uh, the U.S. suddenly find out that, uh, you know, China not only aspires to be, um, you know, the low cost manufacturing, you know, uh, manufacturers for consumer goods, but also want to be technology manufacturers uh, and such as, you know, semiconductors, you know, artificial intelligence and uh, uh, High-speed rails and uh, you know um, you know self-driving cars and uh, and all these things and the speed of Chinese you know technology advancement was really amazing and obviously a lot of them applied in the military as well uh, and from the economic growth perspective, and China has already become the second uh, biggest economy measured in U.S. dollars and uh, people may argue in the purchase power. Pay- parity perspective is already the biggest economy in the world, uh, and its dominant exporters um, and uh, and importers as well, um, and the influence you know um, you know has grown uh, to a level where they feel that uh, the um, the U.S. global hegemony uh, was threatened. And uh, so, so I think it's um, again we analyze the incentive, right? So I think you know it's very natural for the U.S. to basically lay out all the policies and to try to contain China's uh, uh, rise and Chinese development. And I would say because of this, I would say you know this intention to contain China's rise um, is unlikely to change. It will persist, uh, and. Um, um, from China's perspective, um, they also feel like, okay, you know, we thought that uh, we could be, um, you know, equal players in the in the in the world, uh, and uh, now looks like you just want us to, you know, manufacture the cheap, you know, use us as cheap labor in the manufacture low end, you know, goods, and uh, you try to, you know, shut off from the technology, the access, right? And from also from their perspective, uh, from their perspective, they consider, um, China, you know, South China Sea to be part of their, um, the the their territory. Uh, whether whether it is it is not it, whether it, it should or it should not be is not our discussion, right? At different countries, different people have different views. What I'm just trying try, here to say here is, from their perspective, this is their territory, and uh, because they were not. Economically, they were not uh, developed enough, and the military they were not strong enough to defend uh, their territory. They regard it as a national humiliation. Now they have grown, and uh, they feel like uh, they should uh, they should do the the things that they um, they should protect the things that uh, belong to them. Uh, and and uh, at the same time, you know, the Taiwan. Um, you know the Taiwan uh, problem is the um, is the problem that they are facing for a long time where they do think that uh, Chi- you know Taiwan is um, you know should should be unite United um and uh, uh and it is the U.S who are trying to prevent that from happening um so so I, I, you know, but if you change from the U.S. perspective, and the U.S. has been, like, like we said, is the uh, continue to be the global hegemon and uh, was maintaining the order in Asia as well. And then suddenly they they find out China was becoming more, um, you know, becoming more confrontational and uh, trying to do a lot of things in China South, South China Sea, uh, and um, and for the U.S., you know, Taiwan is very important. Both from economic, uh, you know, and the military and a strategic point of view, um, is you know from the defense perspective, is critical component of the first island chain, right, uh, all the way up from Japan and down there to Southeast Asia. And uh, if China, um, you know, united with the, um, you know, if the mainland united with the uh, Taiwan, and that would be a threat uh, for the U.S. you know military hegemony in the, in Asia. And uh, obviously, U.S. want to keep that way, right? And uh, um, and, and and of course, you know, there is uh, if the, if the, if there's a peaceful reunification, you know, we all know the importance of Taiwan semi uh, in uh, in the semiconductor, uh, you know, industry. Um, so both from an economic perspective and a military pr- perspective, the the most effective way to contain China is to keep Taiwan, um, you know, away from China. Right. So I think that will be the focal um, conflict point that is unlikely going to resolve um, and uh, both side is unlikely going to relent. Right. So, so I, I have a layout of all these problems and, uh, you know, looks like, you know, I think, and, and then I think, you know, the there are also, um, you know, the U.S. also suddenly realized that uh, exposed to China's supply chain uh, could be a problem. And that first demonstrated in during the pandemic, uh, in a time period, right? So, so in order to uh, basically to deal with this security, you know, I mean that can, that can be perceived as a security problem. And the US is trying to build a se- separated supply chain and try to reshore and uh, and offshore um, their production and the manufacturing. Um, I would say it's very difficult to do. It take a long time, but. I think that a trend is is going on, um, and uh, so what's the result of this? Um, what's the implication of this? Now, the implication of this is is the following: one is I think the China and the U.S. relationship because of this, okay, the incentive, um, you know, uh, behind, you know, basically their actions were determined by the incentives, right? And because of these incentives, I think the China and the U.S. are unlikely to return. Uh, to the uh, good relationship they have enjoyed uh, in the past few decades, okay? So there will be always conflict and uh, and, uh, and intention between these two nations uh, and uh, whether I like it or not. Um, and um, uh, secondly, I think the practical, there is also a separate supply chain, right? Especially like there will be different, two different you know, technology ecosystem. One is dominated by China and the other is dominated by the United States, which have a huge implications. Uh, and I think the third implication is the, um, we talk about the reshoring and, uh, um, and uh, regionalization of the supply chain. Um, I think it does create a lot of opportunities. Say, um, you know, um, I think a lot of Southeast Asian countries will benefit from this, uh, such as Vietnam. You know, Southeast Asian countries, the Indian, um, and here in the uh, in in Mexico, in 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 the, in the Mexico, um, and also some Latin American countries like Brazil, uh, and they will try to benefit. Uh, both, you know, a lot of them will be trying to be independent, right, and uh, benefit from both sides. And it's notable that China already set up the uh, manufacturing bases in these countries, in order to circumvent this, right? So they basically move a lot of productions into these countries and uh, and export to the United States. And the U.S. corporations are doing the similar thing, right? So I think this is a long-term trend that we can, um, you know, that we can expect. Uh, and uh, what else? Um, now, I think, you know, I sound to be very pessimistic about the relationship between the U.S. and China. Uh, and But I also, I do not think, um, you know, a lot of people were talking about there will be potentially wars, you know, in Taiwan, etc. Obviously, there is always a possibility. But I think the, I think the chance of the military conflict directly between U.S. and China is very small, and I do not think that um, that uh, China is trying to take over Taiwan by force. And the reason for that is, like I said, when you analyze this, is also the risk reward calculation by the different players. They, the you know for the for the, for the China they want to take back a prosperous Taiwan with the uh, technology, the people, the productivity, and the stability. So that it will be peacefully integrated into China, and uh, that will that will you know help China economically, you know, uh, and, uh, and and uh, and uh, and, uh, and achieve its goal. Um, if you take the force, that's a big risk. Whether you can win or not is a is a big question. And you probably will be isolated. And if you use all the forces taken by the China, you take take by Taiwan, you probably will be uh, you know isolated in the world stage already. And you got basically get back a um, a desert island, uh, island uh, which probably is not useful. So I, I do not I think that the risk reward calculation for them to to start a force is very small. Um, similarly, for the you know for the uh, for the U.S. Um, to get directly involved militarily uh, is also very small. And the reason for that is because the China military advancement uh, it will ensure mutual destruction of both sides. And uh, if there's a war between us and China, I do not think there's a winner. Uh, both will be losers. So because of this mutual destruction, and I think cooler head will eventually prevail, uh, and uh, and I do not think that there will be war. Now the both sides basically want to play, want to do, want to run the long term marathon, and hopefully hope to outlast the other. From China's perspective, they want. They hope that economic prosperity will continue, uh, and uh, the soft power, both the soft power uh, and uh, and hard power will grow, and uh, and uh, uh, it will um, create an incentive for the uh, pro um, pro China you know fraction within Taiwan to benefit from the improving relationship, and at the same time to penalize uh, those who are pro independence. I think similar thing U.S. is doing a similar thing. They were trying to basically uh, show force to show to show the support for, for the pro independence forces and tell them they got it back, um, and uh, and by doing so they can um, you know keep, they they can keep um, the U.S. and China you know the China and you know mainland and China reunification uh, as you know as remote as possible the possibility as remote as possible. Um, and obviously, you know, the U.S. hope is Chinese economic development in the future will be different than the future, than than the past, because of the aging demographic, you know, demographic situations, and uh, um, and also, you know, we know they have a a big real estate bubbles and uh, and uh, and etc. And I think it's U.S. you know, China is hoping the same thing to. Uh, you know basically advanced technology and uh and hope the you know Chinese economy continue to grow and outpace the United States so i think both sides are playing this merit in you know, long term marathon uh, i think the competition in the end is as actually healthy that it actually in you know help human being advance um you know, their productivity but unfortunately this will involve a lot of uh, tensions and conflict um so So what's the practical takeaway from this? Um, I would say, for example, the Chinese technology companies, um, you know, um, they are very cheap and they have a big devaluation discount versus the American peers. Um, And I would say that discount will permanently exist as long as they are listed here in the United States. Uh, Or, you know, and uh, that discount will unlikely unlikely close. However, um, you know, that discount that uh, that uh, that the discount can increase or can expand or decrease uh, depending on the situation, right? So, you know, from, so from that perspective, and uh, I am actually at this particular point of time, I am actually not super bearish about the Chinese internet and technology companies at this particular point of time. So so I have talked about that. Uh, I have talked a lot about this. And uh, I think a conclusion here is that is the following. One is uh, so just to conclude is one is I think a tension will persist. Uh and uh, however, I do not think that it will be uh um I think the possibility for military conflict is very is in is, you know, a full-scale military conf- conflicts is very low. So if something happens over there, there's a panic, I think you should fade it. Uh, secondly, I think for the long-term planning and the private equity investment in that part of the world, we should be very careful uh, for the long-term private equity investment. Uh, and uh, thirdly, is that you need to be mindful uh, there will probably be two, you know, technology ecosystem developing between these two, uh, you know, blocks. And thirdly, I think there will be, um, you know, um, uh, a lot of countries who is going to benefit from on um, this reshoring and, uh, you know, re-globalization or deglobalization, uh, regionalization of a supply chain, whatever you want to say, um, you know, the South Asia, Southeast Asian countries, Indians, and, uh, and Mexico and the Latin American countries. Um, so that's, that's kind of my take.
2: Right, yeah, well, thank you for that perspective. Now, the, the thing to remember and, uh, always, when talking about different countries, especially if there is some antagonistic relationship, is that it's exceedingly important for these countries to truly try and understand the underpinnings of each other's worldviews. Because it is so easy to come to the wrong conclusions, to have misunderstandings, and things can easily get out of hand i mean we have the example here of of russia assuming obviously that it had enough of a chokehold on 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 europe through its uh, energy supplies that european help to ukraine would be more limited than it turned out to be so we can hope for the best
1: right so now we have come to the end of episode nine of total convexity. So here are some concluding points that we believe that in the future and the economy market will be more volatile, both in the recent and the, you know them both in the recent and the intermediate past. Our framework for analyzing how the economy and the markets develop and change does not change. However, the cycles and levels will be more unpredictable with inflation and the markets being more variable than in the past. So I think the geopolitics will play increasingly more important role. Uh, will have long-term implications. Uh, And um, have I summarized that correctly?
2: Yeah, this was a good summary. And well, you know, this was too much of a red pill almost. (laughs) A bit depressing. So I have to find some blue pills before the holidays start.
1: Sure. So, Henrik, tell us where listeners can follow us.
2: Absolutely. Well, listeners can follow us by searching Total Convexity in their favorite podcast apps or via YouTube. Please don't forget to click on the subscription button so that you will be automatically notified when a new episode is available. You can also follow us on X, Twitter, where we have a handle at Total Convexity. And you can email us at totalconvexity.gmail.com. At Finally, you can follow our insights on Substack at totalconvexity.substack.com. We promise never to spam you, never try and sell anything to you, not advertise or a- a- anything. All you'll get is our honest take on the markets, right or wrong and we'll try and make it short and sweet. Anything else, Jim?
1: Uh, No, that's it. Thank you, everyone. If you like this episode, we would appreciate if you can pass along to anyone who may be interested. If you are interested in what we do, please reach out to totalconvexity at gmail.com. And this concludes the ninth episode of our podcast, Total Convexity. See you next time. And happy holidays. Happy holiday.
0: Disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Consult with a qualified financial professional before making any financial decisions. All investments involve risks. There are no guarantees of profits and investments may incur losses. The contents discussed in this podcast is not a recommendation for any specific investment. Past performance does not predict future results. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are their own and may not necessarily reflect the views of the hosts or affiliated parties. The podcast host and guests may have financial interests in companies or products discussed and listeners should be aware that the opinions expressed by guests and their hosts may reflect biases. We strive for accuracy, but financial information can change rapidly. The content may not always be up to date or complete, so verify information independently. This podcast does not offer legal or regulatory advice, and listeners are responsible for ensuring that their financial decisions comply with applicable laws and regulations. Mentions of specific financial products or services do not constitute endorsements. Perform your due diligence before engaging with any financial offering. Listeners are fully responsible for their financial decisions, and the podcast's guests, hosts, and affiliated entities are not liable for any financial losses resulting from actions taken on based on the provided contents.